From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Lizzie Watson, ACLU staff attorney and your host for this month. My guest today is Imani Perry. Her latest book is South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon to Understand the Soul of a Nation. In it, she writes that understanding this country starts with the South. Imani challenges the idea of the South as a backwards place, a repository for the U.S.'s shame over slavery, white supremacy, and poverty. To cast away the South, she writes, only props up a heroic self-mythology of the U.S. that fogs up the mirror of history. Amani is based at the Department for African American Studies at Princeton University as an interdisciplinary scholar of law, literary, and cultural studies. In addition to South to America, her books include Breathe, A Letter to My Sons, Looking for Lorraine, The Radiant and Radical Life of Lorraine Hansberry, and other titles. She was born in Birmingham, Alabama, and while she's lived much of her life elsewhere, she still considers Birmingham home. Amani, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I want to start by asking you about what feels like the driving force behind many of your books, the push to complicate and infuse complexity into the stories we tell. In Breathe, A Letter to Your Two Sons, you start by pointing out the rejection of this statement, it must be terrifying to raise a Black boy in America. The sentiment, you argue, flattens the narrative, the joys, and the special gift of raising your sons. And now in South to America, you speak of a rejection of a history truncated into romance of a South that holds all of our nation's shame and guilt, rather than an origin point of understanding. Can you explain why the mission of bringing complexity to our narratives, our histories, and our myth is so important? Oh, thank you so much for that question, because that really is at the core of my work. You know, stories are the way that we organize knowledge, and they are the way that we interpret the world around us. So part of my interest in telling not just more complex stories, but stories that I think are more attentive to questions around, you know, human suffering and questions around justice, um, I think that it gives us something to work with in terms of moving towards a better society and towards the beloved community. So there's a political impetus. And I think it's really important to keep in mind that there's no kind of history telling or storytelling that is objective, although sometimes people pretend as though it is. It always includes values and priorities. Um, so that's always at, at the heart of my work, both wanting to draw attention to things that I think are important, but also disrupting conventional narratives that I think get in the way of us pursuing a better world. This particular book in some ways is the story that I've been trying to figure out how to tell my whole life. I, I left the South very young. I was in New England and I would go back and forth between Alabama, Massachusetts, and then also in Chicago in the summers frequently visiting my dad. And so I was always so astonished at the characterizations of the South, frustrated often as well, and very aware that those characterizations often facilitated people ignoring the injustices, the inequality, the racism in their own places. But also they were often very sort of classist and elitist and and sort of contrary to the values that the people in those very places claim to hold. And so, and so part of what, um, getting to this point in writing this book was about sort of a culmination of an argument that I've been making individually, socially, and also in classrooms for years and wanting to do that in part because of the urgency of our moment. Um, we have had this sort of uh, in a series of intense encounters, racism, misogyny, 
homophobia, climate disaster, all of the above. And so much of those issues, so many of those issues and the heart of them comes from the origin of the country and the kind of bloody origins of the country in so many ways. And so to tell this story is actually to go to the root with the hopes that we can get to something better. Uh, So do you see the book as like confrontational in a way that like you're taking on the challenge of like addressing the dangers of myth taking its fact and also, you know, addressing what's threatened by bringing in the complexity. Um, do you, was that a goal of the book when you were writing it? Um, that's such an interesting question. I think less confrontational than about encounter. So I, the book is organized in many ways around a series of encounters with people and places and trying to bring the reader along with me to dig underneath them, right? For example, I tell the story of encountering a woman who is driving a lift for me. As our conversation unfolds, it turns out that she conceives of herself as a faith healer um, and also tells a story of encountering her own experience of divorce, but then it's so bound up on the one hand with the way that sexism and misogyny work in our culture, and then on the other with a kind of notion of theology that creates hierarchies amongst people, right? So there's all these things swirling in this one encounter that is also one in which I feel endeared, although frustrated with her notion of being a Christian is about superiority over other people. So it's a confrontation, but more in an exploratory one and wanting readers to move along with me, even if they ultimately don't draw the same conclusions, but to see underneath the layers of someone who thinks in this way and also to see both her vulnerability and also her investment in um, things that I think are part of the kinds of structures of injustice that we live with. Yeah, that was such a great narrative excerpt in the book. So I am not a Southerner, but both of my parents are from the South, Morehouse Parish in Louisiana. Um, And I grew up visiting there in the rural South where I had family growing up. So you mentioned that you're from the urban South, um, and there's quite a few depictions of the urban South um, in the book. So how did you try to balance the depictions of the urban versus the rural South? I think it leans more urban because that's closer to my experience. But I mean, there are Souths plural, which is part of my own discovery, right? Because I, as a deep South Southerner, had my own biases about what counts as the South, right? And I, through the process of writing this book, I I was expanded. So much of the production of wealth in the United States historically has to do with what the variety of labor relations that developed in various parts of the South, that this is this land that's really abundant. I mean, I pushed myself to think in terms of both historic development, so that and in terms of industry, right? And also the cultural piece. West Virginia had intrigued me because it is the whitest Southern state. It's also a state where the outcomes of people, whether you're talking about healthcare, education, life expectancy, um, how, you know, poverty, all those things are very similar to what you see for African-Americans, even though there's relatively few African-Americans. So there's something about West Virginia that t- opens a story about sort of vulnerability in the South. Think about West Virginia as a place that seceded from the Confederacy historically, but also as a place that has some of the most important labor history, but also a place that has been shaped by race and racism. I wanted to go places that were going to open up issues, ideas, 
that are critical to American history and development, right? So that it's not, it wasn't sort of conventionally systematic. Um, And I also went places where I thought I had something to say that was insightful. I do think it's just very compellingly written. And I feel, I do feel like every piece is like, that's, it's exactly right. You did have something to say about every, every region that you did a, a deeper dive on. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the depiction of race. So throughout the book, you talk about how much Black people influence Southern and thus American culture. And kind of how I grew up was kind of thinking about race in the Black-white binary. But you also really do weave in the stories of Asian, Jewish, Latinx, Indigenous people. Did you have a goal about how to depict race in the South when you started this book? Mm. That's a great question. In previous books, I have written quite a bit about how, although our language of race tends to be a binary in the society, you know, the United States has never been a racial binary. And actually, there's a lot to learn from the multiplicity of ways in which people are racialized. Part of my objective, though, the kind of explicit objective is to make people understand that the story of the region isn't a binary story. And in fact, that if you understand that the South comes about, that the South and the Caribbean (laughs) were one region, they were one, that was one region that was battled over by European empires that were seeking wealth and power, right? And that people, indigenous people were pushed out African people were sort of ground down into lives that were that were um, completely subjugated and that these were port places where people came in and out and folks were always moving either because they were driven about or because they were trying to escape. Then you understand why it's such a complex puzzle, right? So if I, you know, so for me to tell, you can't tell the story of Alabama without talking about, or the settlement of the Black Belt without talking about Indigenous people. You can't tell the story, I mean, the the deep connection between the histories of Central America and the South, and particularly Louisiana, are really important for under, so now when we talk about, oh, there's all this migration from Central America, well, that is to be expected given how the cycles of money and power operated for the past several hundred years. So I wanted, I want people to sort of free themselves from the ideas of nation state and the way that gets in the way of our understanding of history. And so that was part of the goal in trying to sort of be more nuanced in the depiction, Um, even though, yes, of course, Black-white is the primary structure of racialization in the South and the United States. Yes, my parents, my my mother is white, so, um, and my father is black, and they sometimes have discussions, they met in high school, about whether there were actually people that weren't black or white, like, in their town, like, there are individuals that are of some dispute. <laughs> like, yes, yes, Somebody's, sure. like, selling tamales, so does that mean that they, <laughs> but, like, they don't, like, I feel like for them, it's so clear, the binary was just so clear that it's, like, yes, maybe there's, like, and that's just how they, they grew up, how they lived yeah. their lives. Well, you know, what's so interesting also about that, because one of the things that sort of pushed me as I was writing was trying to figure out, because my mother grew up eating tamales in Alabama. So what's the story behind that? What's the story behind why there are so many older Black women in the South named Juanita, right? The sort of these presence, this sort of Spanish and also Latinx influence, even in the central South before the more recent waves of migration. And that, right, that 
there's these presences, right? Or even in Jewish history in the South, which is this this interesting, um, almost like uh, flip of the switch, right? Between being counted sometimes as almost like white and then other times as absolutely other and subject to violence, right? Those kinds of dynamics, I think, are really um, uh, important to explore, to understand racialization in general. Uh, completely agree. So I wanted to talk a little about the the complexity that you see kind of as a history and as a, a Black history especially. So you talk about how the slow work, the accumulation of action, unnamed people interweaving the ever-connected narratives of events between like the big marches and the seminal markers and the everyday lives of people. And in the chapter about Maryland, where you're excavating what you can about one of your early ancestors, you write, what would it mean to cultivate a sense of nationhood that would honor, um, that you use the name of your ancestors, Easter, Esther, Stace, the ones who labored in these fields, it would require us to put aside our focus on powerful individuals in favor of a collage of historical meaning, allowing for what will remain unrecorded and what will come to the surface unexpected. Why did you want to pay homage to these details and the small accumulated histories, plural? Yeah, I think it's more ethical. You know, in this moment, there's so, there's these sort of ideological battles about how we tell history, right? And people and what we say and what we don't. And and one of the things that concerns me is that on the one hand, there's the mythology that is sort of a confederacy-oriented mythology, right? That of course is objectionable. But, But I'm also worried about mythologies that are on the other side that tend to expunge the history of violence and cruelty, right? To sort of folks, these are our noble principles and that was the bad stuff that happened. But it actually, there's something that need, we need to actually engage in historical reflection that is not just, you know, ever, we're moving towards an ever more perfect union. We need to actually confront the relations between human beings and human beings in the land that have shaped the way things have been done and that continue to animate the way that we are. So if I'm telling a story in which my ancestor, Esther, is at the center of the historical, of a kind of historical portrait, that suggests to me that that also means today, as we describe this nation, right, the person who was analogous to Esther, the incarcerated person, the undocumented person, the person in the fields, the per- has to be understood as part of the fabric now as well, right? It's not just I'm going to recuperate the past by saying, oh, we should include her. No, I'm saying, what does that mean? What does the nation mean from the perspective of someone who's on the outside at the founding? Right? There's this political structure that's built with these people doing the labor, but they're just, they're present and on the outside, right? And that kind of question to me is an ethical challenge to who we are today. It's not just how we tell our past, it's what we are willing to be honest about now. I want to return to that theme, but first I want to ask you about um, this idea that, like for me as a Black person, I just don't know really beyond my own grandparents. I just don't know the history, and I've never just been moved to get one of those DNA tests, and I'm not sure I would feel more kind of locked in if I did have it. 
So you talk about in the book, though, that Black people aren't necessarily able to get clarity about the lives of past generations. And so that's certainly been true for me. But you also have this kind of framing of it that because of that, we can kind of claim a common inheritance in Black history in the U.S. And I just wonder, as you were writing the book, was sharing more of that common inheritance, I mean, I guess with the country, but with Black people specifically, was that something that you had in mind when you were writing? Absolutely. And I so appreciate you raise that point because I do some genealogical work because and I'm curious about it, but I'm also very skeptical of the meanings that we place on genealogy as opposed to, because I do think when we delve into the past, it's all, it, I think especially for Black people, but I think in general, it should be for all of us, right? The lessons that we learn are not private individual lessons. They are collective lessons. I want to claim, you know, there's lots of people in history that claim that I have no biological relationship. And I don't think I should to should have it in order to sort of lay claim to understanding something. And I think we need to hold on to understanding that you can tell a story of who you are and what you came and what you come from that doesn't require particular kinds of recording. And I think that's important, you know, for us to understand. Yes, I agree. Actually, one of my favorite parts of the book was the discussion of the deep South roots of Black power. So I live in the East Bay Area now, and I feel like a very clear beneficiary of the Black power movement, the Black is Beautiful movement. And when I think about that, though, I think of the Black power movement of Oakland and the Black Panthers in Oakland. And to me, the Deep South is a place my family had to, like, escape. (laughs) But you really challenge that framing that that's kind of I mean, like with with facts. I mean, yeah. I don't think anyone <laughs> could argue could argue with you. People are from where they're from. Why did you want to include this um, this section of your book? Yes. So this is. I think this is really important because I, as many people, I'm frustrated with the public narration of the civil rights movement. Right. So the public narration is, you know, fifty four to sixty eight. You know, nice black people in the South marched and got laws. Things start to get a little dicey around 66. And then everything, you know, for lack of a better term, went to hell. And the people, the Black people in the North got violent and they had guns and they did all this bad stuff, right? And my own experience in being born in 1972 in Birmingham in the midst of radical Black leftists and having, there's a long radical left tradition in Alabama in particular for Black folks, um, but also to understand that general narration is incorrect, right? So that all along the way, there are people in the in the South and also in other parts of the re- who are trying to figure out the question of liberation. And part of what happens is that the push for a sort of integrationist model, it's not as though there was some sort of internal rotten Black people got confused. There's a, a large rejection, wide ranging across the country, not just in the South, of the ideal of integration and Black people, just in the, as in the post-Reconstruction period, have to turn inward and imagine liberation on their own terms. This is why you get a turn to nationalism. And it happened again in the 70s. And so many of the people who became, you know, radicals in other parts of the country, their roots are in the Deep South. And they would talk about that as being part of the inspiration, right? So Geronimo Pratt said, you know, well, part of the reason I became a Black nationalist was because I remembered what it was like in Louisiana. We had our own fire department. We had our own schools. We had our this sort of notion of independence. Or my mother, who will say, 
everybody had guns in the midst of that you couldn't have protected the nonviolent resistors without guns, right? So this notion that somehow guns happened in 1967, right, is or 60s, it's it's just fiction. And it is a fiction that serves this idea that there was something somehow morally objectionable about Black people shifting the the center of gravity politically to the politics of self-determination and also self-defense in the face of enormous violence, right? And so I wanted to tell a story that one that doesn't get told, but also to tell a story that is truer about how the political shifts took place. I mean, King is another good example. It's like Martin Luther King Jr. dies in April of 68, but It's like the way that in the public arena, you would think 66, 67 didn't happen because there's like no quotations of him in that period when his his anti-colonial, anti-capitalist kind of critical posture becomes more public. That gets erased. And I think it's a a huge loss um, in our understanding of history. Yeah, like I said, my parents are from the South, but that people, like if, what they, what you read in the history books is not what their experience was. Like they did, their school was integrated when they were still school-aged. Well, they graduated in 1976 from high school, so it should have been integrated a long time ago, but they were only integrated in high school. And they still had, they had separate proms, they had separate cheerleading teams. My parents only met because they were in the band <laughs> because they didn't have enough for um, two separate bands. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that you that you bring up um, is the difficult side effects of desegregation. You talk about kind of this loss of a tight-knit Black world. And I wonder if you feel like we're missing kind of a Black communal space that we should be trying, I guess, like we, the, the Black the right, Black community, right. we should the be trying yes. to, to rebuild. <laughs> well, I don't, you know, here's what I think. After desegregation, and we didn't get integration, and I think that's an important piece of it, right? 90% of Black principals lost their jobs. Tons of Black teachers, Black athletic directors, Black drama teachers, Black, I mean, all of these people, there was an entire infrastructure of people who had devoted their professional lives to the nurturing of Black children. It's also the case that there were lots of Black civic organizations, there were Black professional organizations for teachers and the like, right? And Black schools had historically been these places where people gathered for much more than just teaching, like they were civic spaces that were important. So there's a loss that happens there. I think the bigger issue is that they don't exist now and we need them because we have growing inequality and we have lots of very vulnerable communities, right? And so so for me that it's not, I don't want to sort of romanticize the past, but I do want to account for the loss of the very kinds of structures that made it possible to lodge the movement and also to develop this unbelievable resilience in the face of a white supremacist social order that was in the Deep South. That's, uh, that is so interesting because it's all, like, I didn't have a lot of Black teachers growing up, but also like, I feel like I didn't have a lot of teachers that empowered me growing up, whether they were like, yeah. black, like whether they were black or not, right? And kind right. of what you're missing, right? It's not necessarily just the, the seeing someone like you, but also just the kind of feeling. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So a refrain you come back to throughout the book is, as Faulkner put it, the past isn't even past. Everything repeats and recycles. 
At one point, you bring up in relation to Trump and the family separation policy, which they sell you actually litigates over. You say that while Trump's policy was the most overtly cruel, Democratic presidents before him have done the same thing, removing children from their homes, whether through immigration or through the criminal legal system. And Black families, of course, have been separated by the government for centuries. Why is understanding the past and the present particularly important to understanding the South and race relations more broadly in the U.S.? I mean, I think one part, and it's also the, and also with, you know, indigenous families as well, you know, Native American families experience child removal to this day too, right? And so, and I think it's important to understand why it can happen in such a casual fashion today. When you have practices that are ritualized and justified without ever mentioning race or class, right? Then you can, it becomes very easy to just repeat the cruelty ad infinitum. I worry about the cynicism sometimes of my fellow leftists, right? Well, of course this has always been happening, but no, but that's, okay, that's true. But the bigger point is, you know, okay, now that we're paying attention to this, what can this teach us about how we need to transform? more broadly, I think is is the question we ask. And I think it's important because so much of that cruelty, that kind of cruelty has its origin point in the South because the South was the breadbasket. Like that's a place of bounty. It's not that because the South is like sort of worse morally, it's because that's the place that the whole country fed off of. So as you touch on in the book, at least historically, if not currently, Americans really... <laughs> celebrate and honor power and greed and domination. And that's what leads us to memorialize and continue, continually retell the stories of some figures while ignoring others. How do we break this addiction to like wealth and, this, and status building as the marker of success that should be celebrated? Yeah, you know, that's a hard question to answer. I wish I knew. I mean, I do think that we should, though, be very deliberate. And I've written about this in other books more explicitly, but we should be deliberate about what we take in and where we pay our attention. You know, I used to do this exercise with my kids where I would drive them through different neighborhoods in Philadelphia and ask them to observe, right, what, you know, what do you notice here, right? Whether there's, you know, more trash in the street or whether there's, you know, there's buildings in disrepair, what does that suggest to you? Because if you don't talk about it, people just say, oh, these people don't care as much about their neighborhood. And similarly, when we would go to buildings, I would say, so who can get in here and who can't, right? Like, could you get in this building if you had a wheelchair? Could you get in there? Could you navigate this space if you were visually impaired? Those kinds of questions, because things are designed in ways that advantage and disadvantage people. And those are reflections of values too. So I just is sort of like, can we pay attention differently, you know, um, as, an, as an important moral exercise, I think, for all of us. Yeah, and to just like ask those questions, right? Like, obviously no community wants a freeway running through their neighborhood, right? So at the end of the book, you address the reader challenging that person to cross the threshold from reader to action taker. Um, can you read that paragraph of the book, starting with Dreaming Isn't Dead? Sure. Dreaming isn't dead. It can't be. We can do it anew. Me and you, both of us are required. I believe writing can be a moral instrument if it asks you to do more than read. Do you? How many times will you witness people being starved or worked to death 
driven out of their homelands, the land blasted and lives destroyed, and be only quietly horrified? When will you finally be repulsed enough to throw the wrench in the works? When will you allow curiosity and integrity to tip over into urgency? I'm asking you, I'm asking myself, to dig deep enough for the truth to flood in. Thank you for that. Do you feel like we saw people push to action during the protest of summer 20, or if there's a more recent example, like the protest from the Trump administration, do you feel like that is the action that you were hoping to see, that you're pushing people to? I think it's one type of action. But, you know, I think, and this goes back to in Charles Payne's book about um, the Mississippi Freedom Movement, I've Got the Light of Freedom, he, he draws this distinction between the mobilizing tradition and the organizing tradition. So we're very good at mobilization moments where people experience collective outrage and get mobilized and take to the streets. Organizing is harder. Part of the reason it's harder is because we don't tell the histories of organizing as much as we do of mobilizing. One of the things I often say is if we could each find an organization that we say we could commit to for 10 years to work on something, it would have a huge collective impact. If we can get collectively in the disposition of doing daily work oriented towards a more just society, that 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 accumulates because then we socialize our young people and especially our children to having that as part of their sense of what they do. Like that's part of what you do as a person in the world. Are you optimistic about where we are now? And what do you think is kind of the, what do you see in the future for both the states, but for the South specifically? Well, yeah, I'm not optimistic, but I think that hope, you know, as Miriam Kaba says, hope is a discipline. I think it's also a practice that we, that the alternative is simply untenable. So we do the work of hope. Um, and that that's important because we cannot be passive actors as the planet is being destroyed and people's lives are being destroyed. There's a lot of people who are trying to reimagine relations of power. And those are the people that are the guides for me much more than, you know, there's some great politicians now, but those are the folks who are the guides for me in this work. Oh, thank you so much. And I do think that's a, a good note to end on, some people that we can look to. And I really appreciate you taking so much of this time. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcast and rate and review the show. We really appreciate your feedback. Until next week, try to walk on the sunny side of the street. <laughs>